0: Unsolved Mysteries podcast
1: update. Update. Uh, the main goal of this recording uh, is to uh, hide the gut. Single topic: DB Cooper skyjerking incident, 1971. It's not so many. So this is the first video podcast I'm trying to do. I kind of look shitty. I had, like, a whole costume thing planned out, and uh, it's, like, at 95 degrees outside, so I'm not doing it. I have to wear glasses in this one, and it's going to catch reflections everywhere because I can't see, and I'm out of contact lenses. Hey, everyone, thanks for checking us out. Uh, If you're a repeat listener, thank you for waiting again. I am here to talk about historical crime things in a more casual manner where i speak in run on sentences i have difficulty pronouncing names with lots of j's in them if you're new this is a side podcast of the main sum podcast where i update the updates i already gave or just do a deeper and deeper dive into uh, a topic related to an episode of unsolved mysteries i already covered before i get into it I'd like to thank David Joseph Moody, Ian Poe, and uh, for helping fund this episode. And right as I was finishing this script uh, towards the end, there uh, we had Rachel Hankins join us. Thanks, patrons, for helping me pay for this stuff and encouraging me to not quit, even though I deeply wish to sink into and then become a part of the sofa and the television, like in the movie Video Drone, and then shoot a senator, governor. Mayor. What happens in that movie? So let's talk a little more about D.B. Cooper. About 20 pages more. When I wrote this piece for this episode originally I didn't want to spend a lot of time on D.B. Cooper theories or even go through the expanded Marvel style universe of conspiracy theory fantasy internet sleuth hysteria and borderline pornographic films by a certain director who Likes putting muscly young men into his films that rub their bellies. And, 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 I mean, who doesn't like that? By the way, there's definitely no swearing in this episode, so you can totally fucking listen to it at work with no headphones on. In the episode, I mentioned that the FBI had just closed the case, and the main living suspect pointed to in the U.M. episode was Robert W. Rackstraw, who was also the main focus of an upcoming documentary. I don't know if you could just hear my stomach growl there. Well, that documentary has come out online, and I wrote my thoughts on the show. I read the book, too, and I'll talk about that in a bit. And Bigfoot. Firstly, before we get into anything, I'm talking about a two-part documentary series, D.B. Cooper, Case Closed, which ended up airing on the History Channel. Which, coming from the ancient aliens people, almost guarantees its entertainment value and lack of reality-based information. But to be honest, I was surprised at how good it was compared to, like, everything else I've seen on that network in the past 15 years or so. Like, we've we've dumbed up a whole generation with that Alex Jones-adjacent, off-brand, pseudo-journalistic ejaculate. I'm just surprised it was my parents' generation that got cummed on. Robert Rackstraw Robert Rackstra is, to this case, a sort of Randall Flagg of the Stephen King novel universe. He randomly shows up all the time, and sometimes it's unclear why until you read all the other books. And what better time to discuss him than the year where The Stand nearly came true. Although it's unlikely a giant literal hand of God would come down from the sky to prevent a nuclear holocaust. Yes, that happens in The Stand, in the book and the movie version. Uh, Also, there's lots of uncomfortable sex stuff. And Gary Sinise. And M-O-O-N. That spells moon. D.B. Cooper. Case Closed, Episodes 1 and 2. I gotta say, without talking about the findings on Robert Rackstraw, the series does a great job of finding people and explaining the history of the actual event. I fully expected uh, for everyone to start to show off saying that D.B. Cooper was built by aliens, or at least, finger quotes, researchers would use the word, ley lines a lot. Several people from the hijacking and people who knew suspects are either interviewed directly or footage of their past interviews are included. For example, the family who found pieces of missing money, a segment that was reenacted in the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Did I say reenacted? A lot of the footage appears to be for a documentary that was going to accompany the book, and stills from this footage appear in the book... Uh, itself which came out before the series i think they shot all this stuff and had this footage then uh, when they got investors they decided to change it from a straight documentary into this sort of skeptical review of colbert's investigation strangely similar to how the movie spookies was made but at least spookies had an exploding grim reaper monster in the middle for no reason uh maybe in season 2 history channel take note it has this weird element to it and by the way i'm i'm going to say like everything about this whole situation is weird like 50 times it has this weird element to it where a journalist and a former higher up in the fbi are here to validate or at least weigh in on the claims of the two guys, Thomas Colbert and... That aspect made me feel weird and very history-channely about a lot of the claims made within this docu-series, Almost trying to turn it into some kind of weird, like... Gordon Ramsay's America's Most Wanted Historical Nightmares and Diners and Dives. Anyway, the two celebrity judges are Tom Fuentes, uh, formerly the assistant director of the FBI, woohoo, and uh, Billy Jensen, uh, who is a journalist guy who helped finish the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, Patton Oswald's late wife after she died suddenly. That's the book that caught the Golden State Killer. I didn't know this before, but uh, Jensen here is the Jensen from the Jensen and Holes, the Murder Squad podcast, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes. Anyway, T and J tell this massive story over Microsoft PowerPoint 98 over the course of five days' donuts, ducks, dorks, dildos, Dick Cheney. It immediately gets weird and confusing, like this podcast. Everyone gets a free trip to Switzerland that nobody gets. A lot of the earlier part of the show is about a guy claiming to be a Swiss baron Norman De Winter, who almost got a bunch of wasps in on, on a free trip to Switzerland, before it was checked up on, and he vanished. Wasps, as in a uh, white ass, susceptible people, according to Colbert and Jim 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 Forbes. That's that's only one J. Robert W. Rackstraw did all the stuff we talked about in the original podcast uh, and did other weird shit like pretend to be a fake baron from Switzerland, sleeping on people's couches, eating food, flirting with girls, but implying he was actually gay for some reason and leaving his shit everywhere, trying to steal your girl and steal your pudding. Bro, you getting pudwinked. They mostly establish a timeline using witnesses claiming they met Rackstraw under goofy fake names, and also trips to Disneyland to establish that Rackstraw intentionally did things around groups of people to get witnesses. Then he would disappear, change his name, do crimes, then suddenly return like nothing happened. The amount of times this happened and people who claim to have seen him on these occasions is like six or seven Rolls Royces of people. And they go all on camera and swear by it except for one grumpy uncle. I would
0: be hard put to say definitely that is the person we knew as Norman DeWinter.
1: It's all a bit weird, though. Uh, And some arguments are kind of fuzzy FBI nonsense. There's a point where they put Rackstraw and other randos on a photo lineup and a guy identifies Rackstraw but not as Cooper as the other guy everybody thought was D.B. Cooper at the time, Richard McCoy. And he's like, none of these guys look like D.B. Cooper, but that guy is Richard McCoy. And because that guy said Robert Rackstraw was Richard McCoy, that means he was really D.B. Cooper and something about bananas. Sounds like, hey, there could be something there, but uh, listen, you know, psychologists are always going to say there could be something there. Sometimes a banana is just a banana. Tom and Jerry, Jim, uh, actually got Rockstraw to agree to an interview a long time ago, but he never would actually do it. They sort of ambush him several times over the years and finally get him on camera, refusing to talk to them while working on boats because he's your uncle. Tom Fuentes, one of the guys there totally judging them, sort of calls them out for ambushing the guy at the boat marina, but he mentions a secret indictment, a.k.a. a John Doe indictment. Basically, Rackstraw is saying, if he admits he's Cooper, the indictment is activated because Cooper was never identified and he can still be charged. It is an interesting thing to say, but Jim keeps badgering him until he pulls away in his uncle-mobile. The guy was like, but why not just say no, though? Why? Why no, no? This bothered me in the previous episode, but it's so fucking weird why Rackstraw wouldn't just say, I am not D.B. Cooper. I never was. Leave me alone forever. But he did say, I didn't board the flight. I didn't call NBC. And a few other things adjacent to, I don't want to talk to you, so it sort of counts, I guess. But maybe I'm being a bit of a bitch because personally, I hate the guy after reading his life story. But after all this presentation about Switzerland and boats, the reporter guy and the ex-FBI guy take the presentation seriously and admit it was a compelling story that he would take to the FBI to at least uh, try and take a like get a solid answer as to why the FBI has ceased their investigations on Robert W. Rackstraw. Answers which they, of course, do not get because apparently the guy that accepted the information from the presentation can't really tell them anyone details or give them a breakdown of info to prove or disprove any theories and, as he says, his job is only to accept actual evidence to make an actionable legal case to arrest someone for a crime. Next, a different FBI guy breaks the news to them that the D.B. Cooper case is going to be boxed up and shipped to FBI headquarters to be put in storage. Which we already knew, and I already mentioned in the other episode, because time has happened. This guy does say, though, unless someone ever turns up any of the other marked money bills or the actual parachute the case is closed and the FBI will not do shit about your pop pops Facebook post to keep screenshotting printing and mailing to them nobody wants those why won't he stop Tina Mucklow the flight attendant who interacted with DB Cooper is again interviewed in this series along with Bill Radicek the co-pilot both of them say they are tired of talking about Cooper and this is likely their final interview Tina basically tells the same story we already saw in the U.M. episode when it was told by Florence Schaffner, and there is a new, nice-looking reenactment that reenacts the reenactment from the first episode of the podcast based on the original episode of the broadcast. I smell burnt toast. The documentary gives Tina and Florence very appropriate, in my opinion, credit for the whole plane not blowing up thing because they very calmly negotiated the transfer of money and kept passengers so calm about the situation, they weren't even aware they were in a skyjacking. The co-pilot says that they very nearly just all ran out of the plane during the transfer of the money. Just as they were going to look for an open moment to all leave, uh, while Cooper was distracted, he got suspicious and told them, stay on the plane. This is also briefly mentioned in the UM episode by Schaffner. They then describe how they were unsure what the hell would happen if Tina uh, was in the cabin while the door was opened, maybe flying into a foggy ICS hell night at only 5,000 feet. The pilot suggested a few different ideas to tie ropes around her or parachute cord, but Cooper kept telling them that they couldn't give her anything and to stay away. When the time came to open the stairwell, he told Tina to go into the pilot's cabins and leave him alone. He tried to open the door himself, but the door wouldn't open because of the pressure on the outside of the plane. They had to radio out and ask for advice, which they took, and slowed down to landing speed. The sudden pressure change through the plane let them know for certain that the doors had been opened. They were not sure when DB jumped from that moment, but they thought it was likely he immediately got sucked out the back due to the air pressure. And then they landed the plane, called back into the passenger cabin several times, decided he was gone, and then news cameras came. Shortly after the interviews, the team then lay out all the details of the case, and the FBI guy and the podcast writer guy basically say they don't believe Rackstraw was Cooper, mostly because of the reactions by many of the witnesses when shown his pictures. What is fun, though, is that Rackstraw was positively identified, a uh, kinda, by, a. Uh, a, a large majority of witnesses as being the weird Swiss millionaire guy, Baron Norman de Winter. Everyone was like, that looks like him, maybe. And, and that definitely could be him, I think. Which basically makes him a squatch, like a kind of less hairy asshole sasquatch. Assquatch. I don't know, maybe it's a Twitter handle by now already. I've just decided it's a real thing, and you can't change my mind. Norman DeWinter was basically this guy that showed up in town with a fake-sounding accent, promising people he would fly them around in his private plane, take them to his property in the Swiss Alps, if they would only give him pocket money and let him sleep in their house. Let me sleep in your house. Let me sleep in your bed. He did this even though he's rich. But, oh, his money is no good in the U.S. Oh, his family is sending him money, but it's late. Oh, he's... He's trying to trade hospitality uh, that will be repaid later, Uh, and it's it's a cultural difference from the land of holy cheeses. Lots of people remember this guy, and lots of folks thought he was just some full of shit weirdo, but they were nice to him anyway. The doc actually has the best and most recent interviews of the crew of the Cooper flight, I'm not going to reproduce everything they say here, but I will suggest if you're really interested in the story, it's worth it to watch the doc just for the interview portions alone. A slight update to this. The HBO documentary came out, and I think some of them did return for that, but uh, I'll talk about that later. It's also important to see the other side of the Last Master Outlaw, modern-day skyjacking Robin Hood, zeitgeisty miasma, because during the interviews... It's very apparent just how terrified these people really were and how the event has permanently changed their lives. Everyone is older now and moved on for the most part and trying to forget about it. But you can't completely cut an event like that out of your memory. And you can see that. And how emotional they get when recounting the story. And and that emotional response to the story comes into play when they show the witnesses photos and videos of Robert W. Rackstraw. But, and, also, they don't recognize him. I don't think so. FBI canceling everything. They talk to a yet another FBI guy, and he basically says... You have 93 points of circle stance of evidence, but if you can't produce some of the money or the parachute or pieces of the plane or find the fucking cigarettes with his DNA on them that the FBI somehow lost, they won't go through Colbert's points piece by piece and confirm or deny them or talk to him about the pieces individually. It's not how they do cases, and they couldn't discuss it with him even if they took the evidence in, vetted it, because again, it would be an open criminal case and they can't just tell some guy all of the classified details of a criminal case even if that guy provided some of the evidence for the case. In conclusion. That's a pun, bro. There's a hyphen. A thing that really sinks the dock is the fact that the witnesses don't recognize Rackstraw. It's this big moment they work towards for a long goddamn time and it does not pan out. And because of that, well, mostly, the Shark Tank sharks don't believe Rackstraw is the guy. Is that still a valid pop culture reference? I think I fucked that up. The docs seem to hinge on that moment, that recognizing moment. And uh, it's it's easy to see why, but eyewitness testimony and face memory is one of the most contested things in most other investigations. I both understand why they think this tanks it, but I also get why Colbert thinks it doesn't really disprove Rackstraw as the suspect. When you watch the show, it does sort of paint Colbert as an old crazy man harassing a different old crazy man for a bunch of barely connecting circumstantial points of evidence, some of which seem to be disproven by science already by 2021. I'll get into that after I talk about the book version. But now, let's talk about The book version. The book version. I read The Book Version, which inspired this doc uh, that came out in 2016. I had originally planned on getting it and reading it the first time around, but decided I didn't want to do a big deep dive on such a popular, well-known case, especially an unsolved one because it's deeply unsatisfying. It was hard to get the book at the time, and I figured it would be a giant waste of everyone's life. I think this was a mistake, and I think I was being a bit of a bitch again. Even if Rackstraw is not Cooper, you can consider this book a biography of Robert Rackstraw, a fascinating sociopathic con man in his own right. And to be honest, if I can change this topic slightly, I'd like to really dig in on just Rackstraw who is probably everyone's favorite subject. Probably. Don't at me. A lot of the big points from the book make it into the documentary. Uh, But so much stuff is left out. They interview, like, everyone who ever knew this guy. And his whole life story is filled with bold, crazy, insane stories and schemes. He was basically a crazy asshole from birth that ruined everyone's lives. Almost everyone they talked to had their life negatively impacted by him in some way. And the amount of people they talked to is crazy. I took a lot of notes from the books. So let's just go through some of the Rackstraw evidence, uh, some of the things he did, and the overall insane story of Robert Airborne Bob Rackstraw. What about Bob? Bob. It's a 90s movie. Robert Rackstraw, a future Marvel B story villain, was born in Ohio in 1943 and came up in Scotts Valley, California. He had a sister, Linda, who fills in most of the blanks of his childhood. Their mother remarried, and although they appeared very civil, I guess he'd never really got along great with the stepfather. Starting in his early teens, he would get into fights, he would disappear, he would harm his sister a little bit, and work on his psychopathic ability to charm people. By age 15, Rackstraw quit school as a sophomore. He didn't care about school and was bored, so he said. Two anonymous sources also say he got them both pregnant and his quitting school may have had something uh, to do with getting out of that whole situation. Getting women pregnant and noping out of the situation will be a theme in his life, I mean, seriously, this guy comes and then runs at a professional athlete level. I mean, he did eventually use the child support money he never gave to his children to buy a small yacht named Poverty Sucks. Rarely do you get to meet a character who is an asshole on a meta level. Linda, his sister, remembers clearly a family vacation where they hooked up with his uncle an uncle named Ed Cooper. It was a couple years after Robert quit school, and it didn't seem like he had any drives or ideas as to what the hell he was going to do with his life, which is normal for a 17-year-old, I think. Uncle Cooper was big into parachuting in airplanes, and that seemed to firmly plant the seed in Rackstraw's brain. He was obsessed with airplanes and hurling himself out of them. And if you believe Colbert, this is where the name Cooper in D.B. Cooper came from, as well. From the stories of his youth, Colbert writes in his book, quote, A textbook sociopath, he was never bothered by the fact that his lies and deceptions hurt other people. Tough luck, he would tell you. In fact, in the beginning of the book, he writes that Rackstraw fits the checklist of the psychopathy test, and that, quote, a psychopath shows no remorse or guilt, is callous, is a pathological liar, fails to accept responsibility, lacks realistic long term goals, is impulsive, has a grandiose sense of worth, and displays criminal versatility. During the course of my five year investigation, sources and witnesses branded my Cooper subject with every one of those descriptions. End quote. And after reading his book, I'd have to agree. The first time Rackstraw landed in jail was 1963, at the age of 20. Apparently, a teacher at school also did shifts as a police officer and happened to recognize him driving erratically. When stopped, he had a false ID and appeared very drunk. They called his stepfather, Philip, and according to Linda, his sister, he told the police, Keep him there until the morning. In fact, keep him in the drunk tank. He can mingle with the drunks. Trying to teach him a lesson. (laughs) 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 Well, what do we know about, psychopaths? Hmm. Rackstraw tries to talk his way out of everything. Gives bullshit excuses and stories. But cops don't care. They throw him in a cell and walk out. Good. Since this was the 1960s in America, it was apparently fine to just have a lighter and cigarettes in the cells. And Rackstra appeared to fall asleep while smoking. Soon, smoke filled the whole fucking jail. After hearing all the stories about him, it is unclear if he set the mattress on fire on purpose or by accident. His whole life is full of situations like this but this was the first time he got his name in the papers for being a fucking idiot. The police were so pissed off at him, they actually kicked him out of jail. They sent him home. The papers wrote about him in a story called Youth Has Hot Time in Jail in the Santa Cruz Sentinel. That's a great headline. About a year later, he decides to get control over his craziness He needs discipline. He needs to learn respect and responsibility. He wants to shoot people, fly helicopters, and blow shit up. He joins the National Guard and loves all of the special training and weapons, so he moves to the regular army and later gets deployed to Vietnam. His stepfather, Philip, is very proud because Philip is actually a World War II veteran. Colbert writes in his book the horrifying details of Philip's capture in the Pacific Theater where he became a POW, and with other POWs was thrown into a big open pit and shot at. By sheer luck, he survived by playing dead amongst the bodies of his fellow soldiers. Even though Philip was described as being a kind, even killed guy, this event traumatized him and put him on edge, Maybe, partly, why he and Rackstraw sometimes had big disagreements, at least once involving Phil grabbing a gun and threatening to shoot Robert. Somewhere in the process, during the National Guard time, he was actually deployed to the Watts Riots, and later recalled his orders to be prepared to shoot the crowd uh, disturbed him to his core, unlike anything he saw in Vietnam. Shortly after, he gets married to a 19-year-old beauty contest winner named Gail Marks. Rackstraw's dislike of authority and his own weird, sometimes sociopathic, personal ethos, his need for absolute control, and his obsession with his own survival and satisfaction made him an awful, terrible, piece-of-shit husband to Gail. He was reported several times for domestic abuse. He would hit her, grab her, threaten to kill her, All between having three children and his halo jump parachute training. A quick note on halo jumping. I think I already did this reference, Uh, but it's the thing that Snake does in Metal Gear Solid 3, like at the very beginning of the game high altitude, low opening jumps. He did it a lot. Uh, Like a lot. He did a lot of training jumping out of planes. Like I know I've said it 30 times. But his, his, it's fucking bananas how many times he jumped out of planes. He's like a super expert. They would later get a divorce, but his inability to apologize or undo his wrongs lasted until his death. He lost touch with his children for long periods of time, used them as an alibi to cover a possible crime, and spent decades working on complicated legal maneuvers to avoid paying child support. An impressive, well-trained soldier on one hand, a conniving, sociopathic deadbeat dad on the other, a.k.a. a walking nightmare. His kids probably fucking funded SpaceX, PayPalling therapists trying to understand literally any decision he ever made. When they finally got divorced, Gale is quoted in the paper as citing extreme cruelty as the reason why. They would still occasionally speak, and rarely he would visit the kids. He told her once he was accepted into the Green Berets and even provided a photo posing in costume. I say costume because this was bullshit. He would later lie about his rank in the military. To the military, he lied about getting a bunch of Purple Hearts. He told stories of secret missions he would later clarify were freelance for the CIA. His military record on paper so completely didn't match his medals, uniform, or many of the stories. We know he actually was trained quite well and did a lot of stuff that he said he did, like flying helicopters to dangerous locations and rescuing soldiers. But, but he was eventually kicked out of the military for trouble. Weapons went missing. He impersonated senior officers. He lied about rank. Finally, after a more thorough investigation, the Army found out that he had lied in the first place about his education, so he was finally discharged. The only real reason they even found out about his history of lying and insane behavior is because they were doing a background check for top-secret clearance. Imagine their collective surprise and his superior officer's mood when they realized the guy they spent years training for all these super special projects, teaching the latest tactics and technology and flying, raising up to join secret special missions, only to find out he wasn't even eligible by basic military entrance guidelines to do those things in the first place. They're pretty mad. There are a lot of completely crazy heroic and criminal stories of his time in Vietnam, but I don't want to cover them all here today it's a lot of war stories i i genuinely can't tell which ones are true and which ones are just made up because that's rackstraw i just use your imagination about what a basically unsupervised psychopath with like a high level of explosives and air training can do he killed a lot of people he stole a lot of shit he broke every rule he could think of sort of like a uh a loki rambo a Lambo. Freshly kicked out of the military, he was busy spinning tales of how he left because he couldn't stand the command anymore and yada yada bullshit. Again, controlling the story. Around this time period, he suddenly picked up another social security number and a really nice story about him appeared in the town's local paper. The same one that dunked on him for almost burning jail down. Colbert writes of a puff piece apparently planted by Rackstraw himself, telling the story of a local war hero, Robert W. Rackstraw, who flew special missions with the left bank. Fearless. Brave. Humble. One of only a few army flyers to wear three sets of wings. For army aviator, Vietnamese paratrooper, and special forces. It's fun because... The special forces didn't have wings at the time, and he just made that part up. It also talks about how during this operation, under a one Ken Overturf, he was awarded multiple medals of valor. Overturf spoke with Colbert and told him this was completely made up, he wasn't awarded any medals, and he wasn't even in the left bank operation. Pentagon records apparently confirm that this operation was secret. The only people that knew about it at the time were people in Vietnam and were considered for or were a part of the missions. One little additional detail is that it didn't actually occur until after Rackstraw was kicked out of the military, so he wasn't even in the country. Here, this is like, this is annoying. Ooh, pee break. Let me just uh, get a little comfortable. There we go. All right, where were we? This would then suggest he wrote the piece himself, faked awards, rank, medals, and technically committed an act of treason. Luckily for him, the story didn't really go anywhere, and it wasn't known about outside of his circle until much later. So essentially, he was this huge fuck-up con artist from a young age. He joined the military to straighten out, and it didn't really help. It just, like, it provided him with better con opportunities with impunity. He genuinely wanted to get top-secret clearance and work secret missions, but that in his military career was taken uh, when it came out that he didn't finish high school. Agitated, he returned home and began to create an alternate reality about his military career, trying to prove to everyone, to himself, he never made any mistakes. He was always in control. No one can control me. Or something like that. De Winter is coming. De Winter, the fake Swiss Baron Prince Von whatever-who-cares, was grifting and sleeping on couches for a while. De Winter was seemingly Rackstraw's character he used to disappear as himself and kill time for a while, according to Colbert. There aren't any surviving photos of De Winter as far as we can tell, but in the dock, we saw that several people thought he could be Rackstraw. I didn't take any notes on De Winter from the book, but he mostly showed up at parties and drank other people's booze, just the same as the doc. I also forgot to write down where this was, but it was within 100 miles, I think, of the area Rackstraw was running around in, but more north, closer to Portland, with a place to store his plane. Yes, Rackstraw had a small plane. That plane and Robert disappeared. And De Winter materialized. The interesting thing about De Winter's relationship with D.V. Cooper is that he completely disappeared without a trace overnight, the night before the skyjacking. He would only reappear once more shortly after, and then no one ever saw him ever again. The skyjacking. Of course, because it's a book and not a two-part docuseries, there are many more interesting details about the skyjacking in the book. I've told the story of the skyjacking like four times now, including the previous episode, but here are a few details I didn't know about or thought were interesting that I didn't say before. When the skyjacking happened, when Cooper made demands, he asked for multiple parachutes. Most sources say four. Apparently, he wanted the FBI to believe he was going to attempt to take hostages via parachute or maybe they just thought that was a thing that could have been on his mind. They think he did this multiple parachutes thing to ensure that the FBI wouldn't tamper with any of the parachutes. If they did, they'd kill him and whatever hostages he had. Would have been an easy way out to give him a faulty shoot and have him crash out of the plane and make a worse mess than any entree at Olive Garden. You get unlimited soup and breadsticks that look like shit and taste terrible. It's a Grimm's fairy tale of false Italian cuisine mockery. And the only lesson learned is don't eat at Olive Garden. Tina Mucklow's perception of him was that he was serious at first and then actually jovial once the money was delivered. Schaffner and Mucklow both individually reported that Cooper jumped up and down with glee when he got the cash, like when I got the Nintendo 64 for Christmas. I still feel the Super Nintendo was like a superior console, but that's a discussion for another time. Cooper jokingly even handed Mucklow a stack of hundreds as a tip, but she gave it back. Too bad. They always write letters. So the previous episode, there was talk that in one of the D.B. Cooper letters to the media, there was some kind of number code that corresponded to Rackstraw, but the numbers seemed to have nothing to do with anything, and even the number itself was miswritten several times in reproductions. I'll talk about it later. There's no mention of the super secret number code in this book, uh, and I think the show too. The articles that I found that reference it are dated after the two were released. So it probably wasn't part of the story quite yet, but the many D.B. Cooper letters do make an appearance, but the many D.B. Cooper letters do make an appearance as a topic of interest. 1.5 terafuckloads of letters are ascribed to D.B. Cooper, but there are a handful that look interesting to investigators. Little hints that they were written by the same person, mailed from a relatively short distance from each other, and the phrase, thank you for your hospitality. Eventually, Norman DeWinner's letters were recovered as well, seemingly mailed from approximately the same general location shortly after the D.B. Cooper skyjacking incident, ending with the phrase, thank you for your hospitality. According to an undercover investigator, J.C. Todd, the escape route flight path of D.B. Cooper, the disappearance of Rackstraw, the appearance, disappearance, and reappearance, and disappearance again of DeWinner, and the letters, all converge at Valley Springs, California, where Rackstraw and his whole immediate family lived. And speaking of family family matters. Whatever happened to predictability? Remember Rackstraw's war hero stepfather? He sort of got along with, but sometimes they would threaten each other. They remained civil for the sake of Rackstraw's mother, who apparently passed away. Funny thing that his stepfather suddenly decided to go to Hawaii without telling anyone except for Rackstraw. Rackstraw who was the last person to ever see him alive. People asked about Philip like his daughter, Rackstraw's sister, and he'd just say like, oh yeah, I just talked to Phil on the phone and he's having a great time. Probably will be gone a long time. But then the police started poking around Rackstraw. They found it curious that he was the last person to see Philip alive and the only person. He told about his trip, but Rackstraw just all shucks the whole fucking situation. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't talk to him on the phone. Uh, <laughs> he asked me to look over the place while he was gone. Well, maybe I just heard that he went to Hawaii. I, I don't know where he went, really. Yeah, for some reason, he decided me, his stepson, a known criminal, uh, should sell all of his things and list his house for sale or for rent without telling anyone. People around Rackstraw pretty much knew that he killed Philip. I mean, they believed it anyway. And he was a pretty likely candidate. He was the only person who ever was on the outs with Philip. So eventually, people, dogs, police showed up to Philip's house. Eventually, a lot of other investigations... Finding shit, the police and dogs the first time missed, looking into places where the police overlooked, they found a lot of shit. Firstly, in the storage shed outside the home, a trash bin. What was in the trash bin? Pants. Soaked in human blood. Also in the backyard, a suspicious mound. So you might be thinking, hey there's no way he was buried in a shallow grave behind his house this whole time right wrong it was the first fucking place they could have looked but nobody cares this whole thing is bungled beyond belief inescapably inexcusably inefficient it was it was real stupid philip appears to have been violently murdered He had a bloody jacket covering his face and he looked hastily buried. Only one fucking person could have done this. We all agreed on that. Asquatch. Everyone agreed it had to be Rackstraw, so much so that the police say they didn't need the physical evidence on the body, the jacket or the bloody pants, which the jury noticed they voted not guilty for lack of evidence. And and all the unused physical evidence was burned. Burned. It's fucking gone. Double jeopardy and burnt evidence assured Rackstraw would go free. Even his own sister, who got along with him throughout most of his insane life even agreed it was obvious who did the crime and it wasn't Asquatch. Further details on this particular part of Rackstraw's life are in The Last Master Outlaw and they are literally just too many to document without just rewriting Colbert's whole goddamn book. I mean this crazy shit He fucking fakes his own death by reporting an engine failure in a publicly viewable place while he's flying his little plane and reports over the common broadcast that he's going down and to avoid uh, being investigated for either this murder thing or check fraud or identity theft. Actually, I can't, I can't remember which one. It's funny. This guy named Robert Eastman then showed up in a town called Fullerton, got a job supervising a construction job across the street from a goddamn police station. People seemed to like the Oklahoma native until he tried to get a duplicate of a pilot's license, which is illegal, and people realized his ID uh, didn't check out, his name didn't check out, the number on his plane was painted over, his references weren't real, and he was fucking rabbit rock Wow. He even somehow gets a job overseas training helicopter pilots before one of his dumbass lies gets him into trouble and fired again. He becomes a purported expert in some kind of synthetic flooring used in gymnasiums and has a business doing that. He had a business called Access Graphics, which failed, and a few people figured it was more of a tech shelter and or money laundering scam allegedly and he had a lot of former criminal fences ID him as a guy that would supply them with weapons he frequently showed up home uh, to every one of his many wives with occasionally horrific injuries and large amounts of cash he allegedly has a bullet wound on his body that nobody knows how it got there briefcases containing guns fake mustaches and makeup IDs with his face on them with other people's names his criminal friends mysteriously die sometimes one secret and one not as secret cache of fucking rifles and handguns stolen explosives in large amounts bank fraud and and one time he shot his sister with a bb gun for like no reason at all This man avoided jail time so amazingly well, he actually started studying law and became a law professor, even though he lied about graduating high school for, I think, like 20 fucking years, was caught living as an entirely made up person and was suspected of providing explosives to domestic terrorists. Yes, he was accused of that as well, because there was a whole B-plot, like M, M or M-plot at this point, where he was the lead suspect in a series of National Guard armory robberies. So if we're thinking like, who would ever be crazy enough, ballsy enough, insane enough to try to hijack a plane like this, like D.B. Cooper, Rackstraw allegedly, supposedly, according to Colbert's book, had those traits in excess. The numbers! Okay, rounding out home here on Robbie, I think I would like to briefly talk about the numbers thing again, even though people routinely explain this in an overly confusing way and even misinterpret what the numbers even are. Actually, this uh goes back to my home state of Indiana. And it, from a town called Wheatfield, because of course it is. A Vietnam veteran who worked around the same time and served with some of the same people, I think, says he was taught code breaking and recognized some of the numbers in a pattern that could have something to do with drop. So I covered this in an old episode from three years ago. But the number code 717171684 next to the words Washington Post was found in one of the D.B. Cooper letters that seemed like it was actually a real one and not a fake one. Uh, When I originally looked at the letters, I assumed that maybe this was like a long zip code or some kind of mailbox code for delivery to the Washington Post newspaper or something. I actually can't find anyone explaining why any of this shit is in the letters at all. Why is there a big number code? And then a bunch of... If you know, leave a comment somewhere. I'm ignorant and in need of guidance. But that guy, the, the code-breaking Indiana wheat-failed guy, says that 717171 looked funny because you can change 71 three times into three seventy ones, Or you can rewrite it as... 371, which is Rackstraw's unit number. And in another letter, if if you look at the closing lines, which are in parentheses, you can see, the, you can use an ABC numeric code to change the letters into a completely different sentence. Uh, let's let this guy explain it because it, it sounds like conspiracy theory mumbo-jumbo when I try to.
0: I was on the internet and stuff, and I seen something about D.B. Cooper and this letter 5. This is the alphabet code, you know. I said he used it in a straight form setting, but he would change it up. Instead of using numbers, then he would use the first letter of the words in a sentence. Please tell the lackey cops, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Separated, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. Okay, then what is your real name? broke it down into numbers, which is going to be from the alphabet code, and that added up to 269. First Lieutenant Robert Rackstraw, I am.
1: I'm really glad that uh, even he admits it may be nothing, and he may be changing the codes and mixing stuff around just to get the result he wants, because that's what it sounds like. This actually is a great example of why the FBI doesn't really like handling Uh, a a hundred points of evidence like this. Their job isn't to solve a mystery because they want to know. Uh, It's to gather actionable evidence to prosecute a subject in court for crime. Each piece is circumstantial and each piece has a possible logical explanation, alibi, and likely wouldn't be connected to Rackstraw and and D.B. Cooper unless someone was there trying to connect them. Seaweed and the Money Conspiracy. So in the series and in the book, the writers spend a fair amount of time about finding the D.B. Cooper money. The clip on Unsolved Mysteries, where they found the worn-out cash in the sand. They find the family, uh, they record them watching one of Rackstraw's, uh, Crime colluder drinking buddies talk about how he heard that them finding the money was actually a planned conspiracy to fake D.B. Cooper's death by making everybody think he'd he or something. I can't even fake interest in this shit. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe he was hiding, hiding the money there for later. Or the money was accused of faking finding it there because it was maybe just put there as a ruse to hide the real jump location. But why, uh, there's this whole thing about how the water flows, its speed and direction changes seasonally. There's debate on how the money ended up there. The FBI was stuck on this for years and the family that accused of faking the finding the money thing in the dock look pretty pissed off because of recent studies on the money. One's involving, um, algae diatoms. Uh, you can read about it on nature.com. Actually, uh, search for D.B. Cooper Money Diatoms, D-I-A-T-O-M-S, because the article name is uh, like 25 words. And, well, they tested the money for algae, right? And you can construct timelines by determining when traces of algae were absorbed into the bills when they went into the water for the first time. It appears the algae didn't settle until springtime, even though the crime happened in November of 1971. So the money was not underwater for a considerable amount of time. It was just sitting outside. Then eventually it was pulled into the water uh, and or sunk into the shoreline months later. This kills a lot of the debate about when and how the money appeared in the water the money would either have to have been buried intentionally or it simply sunk into Tina Bar naturally because of the soft sand and the rain and the weathering. Previous theories have the money floating around for like a year and somehow ending up being washed on shore or sitting on shore for like a decade. There was even this whole test where they researched the types of rubber bands that were on the money and did tests to see how long That specific type of rubber band would perish, and it seemed very unlikely the bands could have been exposed to that much sun or water for that long. The money was likely in the water since spring of 1972 or 1973 due to the algae and damage. Remember, it was discovered in 1980 and in mostly pretty terrible condition. So lots of theories of how the money ended up there were in reaction to how unlikely it could have somehow sunk and washed back up uh, in the manner of the what, rubber and rubber and rubber bands. Yeah. So, it's is it likely that the one guy planted the money in that spot just sitting there in 1972 and waited an entire 8 years to eventually trick his son who was like 8 years old to accidentally discover it under the sand? That sounds extremely far-fetched to me. If there was a conspiracy to fake the death of D.B. Cooper or his location or whatever the point of the cohort was to hide the money, why wouldn't they plant the parachute or his clothes or something that would seemingly prove that he was dead rather than some of the cash? And why would they wait so long to find the money? And why would they put it where it did? And why would a little kid find it? It's just some of It's just it's such a complicated plan. It doesn't make any sense. If the cash was planted there, by that guy and his family. I mean, did they wait? Did they really wait 10 years before that kid was even born? Did they age the money somehow? I know they got to keep some of it and later auctioned it off, but I can't understand the benefit of this. Okay. The cash was fucking heavy. So he could have just like left some of it uh, or, or dropped some of it on his way out of the plane and it fell on the bar there. Remember he jumped out of a plane If he lived and dropped all the cash, it would still be kind of an amazing feat. And if he did all this and the money was all or partially lost, maybe he'd he'd try this type of thing one more time. And this time, ask for way more money. Richard McCoy. Okay, so we're already like 13 pages into a script that was supposed to be eight. I really hadn't planned on focusing on Richard McCoy uh, because I had to watch several documentaries and I read a book about pretty much just Rackstraw and, a, and as well as numerous articles about him and these these UU episodes are supposed to be quickly produced, short and timely and thus far this one has delayed all my other shit I've been working on for like years and made me feel really sad inside. I'm just like so tired of the story at this point. I could barely even write any of this shit. I just I thought about canceling this whole thing, and I just, it's not going well. <sighs> so let's like just briefly take a look at McCoy once again, just to remind ourselves what we're comparing Raxtra to as a subject. There are a lot of other DB Cooper suspects, but McCoy was everybody's favorite. I know I already said. That Rackstraw was everybody's favorite, probably, probably probably shut up, I said probably, Richard Floyd McCoy jr., uh, born in nineteen forty two was a Mormon Sunday school teacher who studied law enforcement when he was twenty nine years old. He was caught and captured for committing a skyjacking. The McCoy skyjacking incident was on April seventh nineteen seventy two following the D.P. Cooper skyjacking that took place on November 24th, 1971, so that was about four and a half months later. McCoy used a hand grenade, I think a fake one, to threaten to blow up the plane, and in addition brandished a handgun, possibly also a fake one, at anyone who would get near him. His skyjacking netted him about 500,000 US dollars in 1972, which is about 3.3 million Joe Biden COVID-19 big poppy robo dollars, but he was caught shortly after. Apparently, a concerned citizen remembered hearing a foolproof plan to hijack an airplane, not so secretly detailed at full volume by a Richard McCoy. McCoy left part of the hijacking instructions on the plane before bailing out and his handwriting was compared to items from his home. They discovered a fingerprint that could match to his military records, and he was identified by someone who gave him a ride around the time of the crime and apparently was identified by a burger stand employee who sold him a milkshake the night of the crime. The evidence, in addition to an FBI interview, led to his arrest. If it was him, the Mormonism would conflict with all the stimulants and seven and sevens he was guzzling uh, on the flight. But I guess so did the threatening to kill everybody. Fucking drunk bank Cooper. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison. He appealed in 1973. The appeal was denied. Uh, So in, I think, September of 1974, he decided to fucking escape federal prison, which apparently was the second time. A few months later, he was tracked down by the FBI, and on November 9th of 1974, he drew his gun on the FBI agents that found him. He was killed in the resulting shootout. The real McCoy. Actually, McCoy. Allie McCoy. The book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy, 1991, and other books published by researchers, amateur and professional, were the subject of lawsuits and general legal threats brought on by McCoy's wife in the 80s and 90s. Strangely, she would succeed in some of the lawsuits despite actually admitting to helping, uh, assisting in the 1972 skyjacking he was arrested for Uh, so like don't say he's db cooper but yeah i did help him terrify an entire plane full of civilians that one time don't judge me by the way i didn't read the real mccoy book i decided to cut that segment short so this episode could actually get released uh, and read it yourself if you're curious about it and just like always stay a little skeptical if the stories are too fantastic There were many people, even at the time of the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, seriously building a case against McCoy as the lead subject and then D.B. Cooper sky-jerking. Or jacking. In the now kind of hilariously titled, Sleuths Say D.B. Cooper Hijack Mystery Is Solved article from the LA Times from 1989, They purport that after four years of investigation, several points of evidence, including interviews, that uh, the fact that both airplanes were Boeing 727s and the suspects escaped through the main rear doors, both requested parachutes and had intimate knowledge of airspace and navigation, passing notes with the phrase, no funny stuff, and the fact that both crimes took place during vacation days at Brigham Young University, where McCoy was... Almost twirly mustache, hipster grade, ironically, studying law enforcement. These were convincing. In addition, it seems both men use disguises. DB with fake aged putty makeup, if at least one of the letters is real. And McCoy with fake mustaches. But this also curiously matches with Rackstraw, who seems to often carry a briefcase with the same items inside as detailed in the last Master Outlaw book. Also curious, the hijackers often gave directions using the word we and the word us as if there were more than one person involved in the hijackings. Could be a smokescreen. Could be mild lead poisoning, because it was 1972 when everything was made of lead, even babies. Could mean nothing. And... It's true, too, that many people believe that McCoy and Rackstraw were actually partners who found a way to cleverly keep their relationship a secret. The men looked alike, uh, had similar military training and experience. They disguised themselves. They had an almost identical modus operandi when it came to other crimes they committed. And they were in a relatively close area around the time as the hijackings. Under 150 miles, close enough to travel in a few hours, little problem for someone who could drive a car. No problem for someone who owns their own airplane. Both Rackstraw and McCoy were ruled out as suspects for D.B. Cooper's identity. But why? Well, that's more complicated. The FBI is sort of cagey about answering that question. Uh, any information I have on that is sort of not exactly cited in any official documents I saw. It's stuff I've seen in the book and stuff I've read and and stuff I've seen in documentaries. But uh, in the book, and the articles I read, it appears that they base this on handprints and partial prints on cigarettes, uh, trash and any other random crap that the FBI seems to have misplaced or realized later that they were prints from somebody totally unrelated to the crimes. Some people say it was because Rackstraw was obviously too young and had lighter colored eyes. Uh, McCoy gave the alibi that he was eating Thanksgiving dinner that day, which for some reason the FBI seemingly bought at the time. Fair enough, he had several witnesses that put him in Utah. And after the fact, they decided his physical size and other features didn't match the description from the flight crew. They even said once that they decided D.B. Cooper wasn't actually a highly skilled or daring ex-military guy, so he couldn't be a a paratrooper military pilot because jumping out of the pack of the plane was basically suicidal. Okay, Uh, the FBI actually changed its mind about this whole thing several times and sometimes gives extra obtuse reasons why certain people were cleared and how evidence was used. Like, for instance... DB Cooper left behind a black clip-on tie. The tie was tested for chemicals and traces of titanium were found. Titanium was not a common material in the 1970s, so this could have been a good clue. Also, it had like its tie clip attached on the left side, which was the same one commonly worn by Brigham Young University students. But we don't know anybody like that. Who that? Where's that? Instead, they tested the tie for DNA and attempted to match it to all the suspects. And it didn't match to anyone, which doesn't mean they should be discounted. It just means that what they found didn't match, which sometimes happens for like a million reasons. Even if we should eliminate them, McCoy's family deeply resents the negative publicity their family has gotten from the skyjackings and refuses to help any investigators, so McCoy's DNA wasn't even tested. Perhaps likely the real reason both men were cleared was because the reason we already knew. A lot of these Unsolved Episodes come back around to this point. They didn't have any good evidence. We have a lot of circumstantial evidence, stories, pointing to either man. But of course, as of four years ago, the case was closed by the FBI. Why do you think that is? McCoy had been dead for decades. An important note, Robert W. Rackstraw has very recently passed away also. He has never directly admitted to being D.B. Cooper on record, and if he actually knew anything about it, he has taken it to his grave. McCoy was never going to admit either. He he literally broke out of prison and died in a goddamn gunfight rather than go back. Conclusion zone. This story is completely crazy and kind of compelling. Was Rackstraw D.B. Cooper? It honestly seems super unlikely, right, that both Rackstraw and Richard McCoy weren't D.B. Cooper. Both of them were perfect for this crime, Both were in the area, both had flight training. Rackstraw had paratrooper training. McCoy was an avid skydiver. Hell, they look alike. So they both look like the DB Cooper renderings. But, and usually I don't do this shit, but here's my personal theory Rackstraw could have been DB Cooper. I don't know. But between the two guys. McCoy is more obviously the better choice, mainly because he was actually arrested for committing a really similar crime, which the the FBI has dubbed a copycat crime, and the fact that uh, none of the crew recognized Rackstraw's face or uh, his voice or his mannerisms. Rackstraw was a big FBI suspect for all uh, very good reasons, and because... McCoy alibied out for the crime over turkey and stuffing and was, like, already dead. Reading the last Master Outlaw and all the interviews with family, war buddies, crime buddies, police, FBI, ex-wives, this guy would fucking say anything to anyone if it got him a free sip of beer. He lied about fucking everything. It's almost like he couldn't just plainly tell the truth to anyone else. About anything at all. He rarely ever says, I am not D.B. Cooper, uh, but instead says eighth grader shit-eating bullshit like, it could have been me. I'm afraid of heights. We know he was already committing all kinds of frauds and scams and getting away with most of them. He was actually very intelligent and even studied and then taught arbitration at a university level for several years. He was the ultimate soulless confidence man with absolutely no fear or doubt. Multiple times in the book he is described as being cold-blooded, having steel nerves, and being terrified by his friends. The FBI were on his ass for a lot of his life. He couldn't just go around and pretend to be D.B. Cooper because if he was caught admitting it, he would probably be arrested. The FBI didn't know the identity of D.B. Cooper's, so a typical arrest warrant would not expire. The, The John Doe thing. If a suspect says they're him, they are now able to arrest that guy with probable cause because all they have is the alias. If in that same fashion, even if he wasn't Cooper, telling people he wasn't and then giving them reasons why he wasn't or explaining alibis, talking too much... could implicate him. He kept everything vague because you can't really legally argue one way or the other about it. I expect that's an actual technique he used in arbitration and litigation. Plus, giving himself even more attention from law enforcement may finally expose the litany of other crimes he's committed and, and gave some jurisdiction somewhere, some kind of foothold on him for fucking once. I mean, he likely got away with Tax evasion, falsifying government documents, murder, multiple faked intentional plane crashes, possibly treason. Even if he isn't D.B. Cooper, and this is one hell of a crazy coincidence, he doesn't want people poking too hard into his history because it's all bullshit. Helicopters and robbery? And probably kids with no Christmas presents because he was deadbeat dad. Fuck him. The story of D.B. Cooper immediately throws us all in the weeds of conspiracy nonsense. It's so hard to research this topic and not find even little nothing details that are just made up. I'm not even confident that all the information I've just provided here is accurate. I can't prove a lot of it, but I just... I tried to only use the harder pieces of evidence I could find to discuss the topic. Robert W. Rockstraw did a lot of crazy shit in his life, allegedly. Even if he wasn't D.B. Cooper, the fact that he could have maybe been still makes his story interesting to research. I recommend the book about him, The Last Master Outlaw, even if it veers off into weird places. But this is a weird place already. Richard McCoy is also very interesting to look at. I'd recommend the books about him, but I didn't read them yet because my brain needs a break from this. His family doesn't like it when people talk about him maybe being D.B. Cooper, and I'm not saying that he is. I'm saying he's a suspect, and here's why he's a suspect. The FBI is not interested in pursuing the case anymore for a lot of reasons. Most obviously, they have a lack of leads. But honestly, most of the likely suspects are dead. A lot of them, like Rackstraw, died from heart conditions. and Others, like McCoy, died in violence. Some of them have died of old age or their dicks fall off for like no reason. Rackstraw could have helped plan the skyjacking. He could have liked telling people, maybe it was me, because he was a pathological liar and he loved it. He could have known who really did it. Other people could have taken credit, like his friend Dick Briggs, as a way to puff up and walk tall and create a smokescreen around Rackstraw and live the life of a folk hero. Rackstraw is fascinating because his involvement could have been entirely coincidental. He just happened to be the perfect fit for D.B. Cooper because of all the other complete fucking crazy shit he did, allegedly. He will likely linger in our minds as a top candidate for years because he was indeed guilty of something, and if he was an expert at anything, it was avoiding responsibility. D.B. Cooper's crime caper could only be successful truly if D.B. Cooper never existed before, like Robert Eastman or Norman DeWinter or JFK and disappeared after. He was created for the crime, and when it was over, he ceased to exist. Like Keebler's Pizzeria's pizza chips. Look it up, they were great. After all, reality check. Hundreds of people have taken credit as being D.B. Cooper. Thousands of D.B. Cooper letters were sent to the media. Search for D.B. Cooper on Amazon. You'll find all sorts of theories backed up by their own books, sometimes terribly made and self-published with an oeuvre of manic, unedited Tumblr posts with cover artwork to match. Everyone has their own pet theory they want to try to convince you of. D.B. Cooper was my neighbor. D.B. Cooper was my father. He was a Zodiac. He was Asquatch. Maybe it was Kenny Christensen! He had insider knowledge and experience and even though he apparently had a low salary at the airline where he worked, the same airline as the Skyjackings, suddenly in 1972 he was able to purchase a new house with cash. Like Rackstraw he had paratrooper training, unlike either of the others, he had intimate knowledge of the 727 airplane, having trained as a pilot and worked as a flight steward. Maybe he had a grudge against the airline. Or maybe he just kind of sort of looked like D.B. Cooper. Maybe he got the money from selling land. Maybe his grudge was against his supervisor, who was a micromanaging dick who hired him to do a job based on his experience and then questioned his judgment every single fucking day, Barbara. He died in 1994, and on his deathbed, he told his brother, quote, there's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Maybe he was trying to confess. Maybe it was a fucking amazing prank like the Dana Gould bit. The money is buried in the... There are a few well-reviewed books and TV series that investigate him as the true suspect as well, and it also seems credible. On that note, recreating the jackening and pop culture. Brad Meltzer's Decoded as uh, a sometimes funny TV show that has a pretty detailed episode on the jackening. Uh, they finger Kenny Christensen for the crime and even check out his old house to find a little briefcase-sized hidey hole in the attic. In his episode, they talk about uh, recreating the jump. Apparently, you can pay people money to go up in a plane and do the same fucking jump yourself, but, like, during the daytime, and not carrying bags of money in a fucking geostorm. There is a Discovery Australia show, I guess, that recreated the jump, found it on YouTube, uh, Mission Declassified. They pretty much change every single detail about the jump, though, so it seems entirely pointless. If you check the comments, they're very mean, of course, but they're mostly about this. Essentially, their whole sticking point is whether or not the DB Cooper uh, could have accurately timed the jump to hit a specific landing target. Uh, even a 30-second delay could have had him land in a wildly different location than he had planned. They also, of course, tried this in the day with modern parachutes that have steering. Uh, D.B. Cooper specifically used an old Army-type parachute that couldn't do that. Uh, he was jumping at night, and it was bad weather. There's really no evidence that he was trying to hit a specific target. They used a quarter-mile target for their test, but He seemed to only want to jump in a vaguely forested area that could have been much larger than that. The fact is we don't really even know where he was attempting to jump. Just that he was trying to make a survivable jump in a remote area where he wouldn't be found. Uh, We don't even know when he jumped exactly because he wouldn't let anyone look at him while the plane's door was open. The only hint that he jumped was the pressure change when the door opened and then the plane shook hard uh, when he jumped out the back. Their jump test did conclude that the margin for error to jump in a quarter-mile radius was a mere four seconds, or else he could wind up a full two miles away from his intended drop and end up in the forest. He likely would avoid the forest to not be smashed into the trees, but then again, he may have avoided open spaces so nobody would find him in his chute. The fact is, we can't reason either way, and the only logical conclusion is that he wanted to make a jump survivable in a place where he wouldn't immediately be located. The White Rabbit Project Episode Heist covers the D.B. Cooper story by placing the old Mythbusters team into the story. Uh, They do a fun pop TV version of the events. I guess I expected them to do a sort of experiment about it, but I guess they don't do that in this show. I watched yet another history special, this time History's Greatest Mysteries, hosted by Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, They focus on Sheridan Peterson this time, and there's a lot of walking in the woods looking for shit that they don't find. The investigator guy does seem to have good alternate ideas than the FBI where the flight actually was when Cooper hacked himself out of the back like a plane, like a human loogie. But like, every other series claiming to solve the case... All the articles you see that D.B. Cooper case solved 2020, 2021, it fucking doesn't. Sheridan Peterson just recently died, by the way. Another extremely interesting character in the D.B. Cooper conspiracy vortex of madness. If you want something a little more fun and less documentary, Treat Williams portrayed D.B. Cooper in the 1981 film, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, which is funny because Sheridan Peterson in in the interviews misremembers a detail about the skyjacking when he was being interviewed about his thoughts on it by an FBI agent uh, because the movie version changes some of the details like how Cooper left the bomb on the plane which he didn't which Sheridan thought he did also he was really old so give the guy a break I didn't finish the movie I thought it was so boring I'll try it again Robert Duvall The Seth Green and guy who is married to Kristen Bell and other guy who was in the Scream movie without a paddle. It's all about three friends who love D.B. Cooper's story so much they go on a wacky adventure and try to find his treasure They even dress like him. I'm pretty sure they find a still alive Cooper played by Burt Reynolds but that he may have just been some other guy. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Didn't want to watch the whole movie. Uh, to review this podcast because my brain hurts from all the other shit I already watched. And running on fumes, I must admit, I actually partially picked this topic because of an upcoming, at the time, HBO doc that came out last November, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. But I genuinely couldn't get it to work in Japan. I, I couldn't find it anywhere else to stream I read some reviews of it, though, and it, it seems like a pretty good summary of all the different suspects and investigates a lot of uh, different theories. I think the guys who said on the flight that was their last interview, I think they actually did do an interview in that one. I'm, I'm going to have to tap out on it, though. Uh, I already watched, I think, 10 hours of different D.B. Cooper documentaries and uh, my brain, my, my brain can't handle anymore. And of course... Highly recommended for extra credit for those of you really fascinated in the DB Cooper case, the Academy Award winning film Bigfoot vs. DB Cooper, a truly wonderful film that answers important questions, such as who was DB Cooper? Answer Uh Eric Roberts. Uh could DB Cooper win in a fight with Bigfoot? Answer Fuck yes. How many potentially shirtless men in their twenties can you have running around in the woods? Uh, being killed off by a guy in a, a dollar store ape costume who is much smaller than you'd think. Uh also, yes, uh, that fucker was my size. I mean, he's fucking normal foot. Sadly, this film doesn't feature ass squatch. Missed opportunity. In closing, uh, I don't want to make you feel like you wasted your time here with me, uh, or or like uh your anti-vax aunt but do your own research like at your own risk (laughs) because from what i could tell discounting the craziest uh, the most conspiracy of conspiracy theories that have literally no evidence rackstraw fits in some ways mccoy fits in others and kenny christian fits too in my opinion the most interesting choice is rackstraw And if indeed his alibi was faked, uh, the most likely choice was McCoy, Uh, the one that seems like it would make the most sense to me, maybe, was Christensen, uh, making it sort of like an inside job. Uh, Maybe I'll do an update update on him sometime in the next five years, when more research comes out, maybe. And to be honest, again, there were more than three suspects. This year will mark the 50th anniversary of the skyjacketing, so we're likely to never know for sure who did it. Uh, If we had the cigarette butts from the flight, maybe, but the FBI somehow fucking lost them. If we had a good uh, print ID, but there is speculation that the handprints were never Cooper's in the first place. We just don't have enough to figure this out. You may be able to find 10 more completely believable suspects, 20 more. But with so little actual evidence to work with, I can't imagine ever truly believing in any one of them. So, okay, if I had to pick, in my opinion, what do I think? Asquatch. I know what you're thinking. Asquatch isn't real. You just made that up in the middle of this episode. Yeah, well, (laughs) whose ass is this then? thanks for listening special thanks to ian david and rachel for being patreon supporters i hope this was entertaining uh the next episode will be another casual style update update or prime series episode six don't know which yet stay tuned to figure out two years from now when i finally finish it uh i lost my grandma during this production so hail my grandma uh i miss you and i love you i miss a lot of people actually I haven't been able to come home in over three years, uh, foreign, foreigner life, fucking pandemic. I'll come back to America and see everyone someday, and, uh, get the good hot dogs, and the good hot chips, and drink the local brews, and have a good old stomachache. If you made it this far, please leave some kind of positive review, and I hope, uh, that you take care, and maybe someday you can solve... A mystery. Like whose ass is this? Who do you think? I mean I know, but who's who's do you think it is? Footage and audio from the television show
0: Unsolved Mysteries is used under fair use. This show is not affiliated with the television show. And the footage and audio is used under a fair use without permission. Please support the unsolved Mysteries by watching it from official licensed sources such as Hulu or Amazon Prime. Solve Mysteries is by NBC, CBS, Spike, Lifetime, and currently distributed by FilmRise. We miss you Robert Stack and Dennis Farina. Music by 3 Chain Links from the album Phantoms used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Please see companion text for full license and link. Please visit 3 Chain Links on SoundCloud. If this is 3 Chain Links,
1: please answer my fan mail. Goodbye. does does or does not this ass clap